0: I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor, specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with one of my colleagues from the UCSF Division of Geriatrics, Dr. Carla Parisinotto. She is the Associate Chief for Geriatrics Clinical Programs at UCSF and has developed a particular expertise over the past several years in the practice of house calls. Dr. Parasenoto also made headlines a few years ago when she published a landmark study on loneliness in older adults, in which she and her colleagues found that loneliness was associated with a higher risk of declining and also of dying. And this paper really helped spearhead a much needed effort to address loneliness and social isolation among older people. So I'm thrilled to have Dr. Parasino to join us today to tell us more about isolation and aging and what we can do about it. Carla,
1: welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Leslie.
0: So to start with, I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about how you got involved in this topic. I mean, you do a lot of practicing, and so I'm sure you come across a lot of older adults who are isolated. But actually, many of our colleagues in the UCSF Division of Geriatrics are primarily researchers, whereas you are what's um, sometimes called a clinician educator, somebody who sees patients and who does teaching. And now you're also overseeing some of our programs. So can you start by telling us, how did you become interested in doing a research study on this particular topic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, um, I think in a broad sense, what I would start by saying uh, is that As a geriatrician um, like you, my interest is in understanding what helps to keep people independent, what helps to promote longevity, and what are the factors that we may not be thinking about in our traditional medical care that are affecting people's health. Um, So, I was actually a resident when I became interested in this topic, and I was seeing patients in clinic, at home, in the hospital. And I was intrigued by thinking about why is one person doing better than another when they may look very similar on paper? What is making someone at risk for moving into a nursing home? And because I have a background in anthropology, my interest has really been in term in all the other factors that affect people's health. And so I started really delving into this idea of um um, what what is going on in people's emotional lives that could be affecting their health. And I really knew nothing about loneliness at the time and started exploring. And I think because, uh, like you, um, I was probably seeing some of this in my own patients and not even recognizing it as loneliness and as something that could affect their health. So that's really kind of what started me going. Right.
0: Well, yeah, well, that's fascinating. I had forgotten, actually, that you had that anthropology background, but it's so true that especially as people get older, having this sort of bigger, richer picture of their lives and what's going on in their lives and thinking beyond the traditional medical factors becomes so important. And I think that's part of what draws a lot of us to geriatrics. Well, so tell us about the actual study. Like, who did you study and um, who were the subjects? And then how did you and your colleagues define and assess loneliness? And what did you find?
1: Yeah, sure, so um, so this is actually, it was a study looking at just over 1,600 people. It actually was out of a larger study um, called the Health and Retirement Study, which is based out of the University of Michigan, and it is a national representative study, meaning they, um, this whole group samples a, a group of the population across the United States. And what we did in our study is that we looked at people over the age of 60, we l- followed them for six years, And we asked them if they were lonely. And to answer your question about how we define loneliness, so uh, what we used um, was something called the three-item loneliness questionnaire, uh, which is a a very well-validated tool to assess loneliness. And this asks people three things. We ask people if they feel left out, if they feel isolated, and if they lack companionship. And in our study, we define people as lonely if they responded that they felt any of these things at any point in time, and what we found in our study um, was a couple things actually. One that loneliness was remarkably prevalent. Um, so there were 43% of people of this group of 100 or 1,600 people who reported feeling some degree of loneliness. And what we found was that just by reporting and feeling lonely, people had a higher risk of losing their independence, which we defined as their function, so their ability to do what we call activities of daily living. And people actually had a higher risk of death um, over the six-year time period. Mm. So were
0: any of these findings surprising to you? They certainly sound striking to me, 43% uh, identifying as lonely, but... Which of those findings were, were surprising to you?
1: Well, I would say that um, there's a couple things that were surprising to me. You know, I had a thought that there would be an association. I did not think it would be this striking. So, for example... If you were lonely, you had a 59% increased risk of losing your independence and a 45% increased risk of death. So that was – I think what what surprised me was the magnitude of the effect. And then the other thing that surprised me is that when we do research, one of the things we always try to figure out is, is there anything else that's contributing to this? And people always think, well – you know, it must be depression that you're looking at, and it's not actually loneliness. But what we found in the study, and this has been validated in other studies, is that loneliness can can exist without depression. Mm. So that in our study, particularly, the majority of people were not depressed. The other thing that's um, also uh, interesting about this study is that um, when we think about the things that usually affect death and loss of function, it would be things such as smoking, exercise, and other medical um, risk factors. But when our study, when we take all those things out of the equation, um, which we call doing an adjusted analysis more, more or less, um, the relationship still existed. So this means that this was an independent risk factor. So regardless of other things going on in your life, if you feel lonely, you're at particularly high risk of losing your independence and potentially prematurely dying. Mm, Such an important issue
0: to to, uh, bring to light. Now, in terms of things that might kind of be a, a factor in the finding, you mentioned that one of the things you asked was whether they lacked companionship. And so were you able to tease out how much of the lacking companionship might be related to those loss of um, losses in function and dying? And I'm mostly thinking about how people often, if they're later in life or if their health isn't great, they end up relying on the people they live with or the people near them to help them. Uh, to help them just get to the doctor, for instance, right? You know, mm-hmm. which can help, mm-hmm. help them uh, address health problems and hopefully maintain that function and keep their health conditions under control. So were you able to
1: tease that part out with this data set? I think partly yes, um, and I think you bring up a, really, a couple really good points in this. So one, um, in the study what we found that actually the majority of people who were lonely were actually not living alone, so they were living with other people. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second finding, which was very interesting also, is that the majority of people who were lonely were actually married. So what that gets to, to is when this idea of companionship, it's not really the physical presence of some, someone, it's the quality of the relationship relationships. And this, this also gets to Leslie, what, what um, the difference between what we define as loneliness and what we define as social isolation. Right. And the challenge is, that in the public media and the literature, a lot of people use these terms interchangeably, but it's actually really important to understand that they mean different things. So for example, loneliness, I, I mentioned the three questions, but what, how we really define it is the subjective feeling Of being isolated so it is my internal feeling or your internal feeling which means Leslie I can't tell you that you're lonely because that is your feeling you need to tell me um, that that's something that you're feeling and it's
0: maybe a feeling that you don't feel connected enough to people or that you don't feel understood or that you kind of wish you had perhaps a little bit more connection with others whether they're physically there or not is that about right
1: That's exactly right, and that's similarly to how, you know, the expression that people often say is that you can feel lonely in a crowd, or you can have a ton of Facebook friends and still feel incredibly lonely. It also sounds like it's a bit of a sort of sad or uncomfortable feeling, kind of a,
0: you know, you feel a certain longing. You're not, you're not happy. Um, That's exactly right. In that being on your own, because some of us can think of some people who seem happy enough on their own, although... We can later talk about whether that comes with health risks or not. So yeah, tell us about the other sort of conditions that often get mashed up with this.
1: Yeah, and so the, the 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 related thing, again, is a social, social isolation, which is really about the quantifiable number of relationships. So it's how many people you have contact with on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. Do you have someone that you can actually trust that could take you to the doctor if you felt that you needed to go? So that's more of the number of relationships. So these, these two concepts of social isolation and loneliness can coexist, so they can um, be present at the same time, but they don't have to be. So I could be isolated because I live alone and don't have a large social network, but not feel lonely. Right. Um, And that may have different risk factors. And what we do about it may be different depending on whether I'm isolated or lonely. And I think what you said, Leslie, is really important to talk about is that loneliness is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, It, you know, I think you say the word and it automatically, I think most people can relate either because they felt it at some point or they, they, they feel like they've known someone that has that. And so it is incredibly distressing um, because, you know, another way that that a a phrase that people will say is that it is the distress that results from discrepancies between the relationships that you want and what you actually have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Right. And it's that distress that we think is actually probably at the core of what's leading to some health outcomes. Yeah, And it's probably
0: both a sort of immediate quality of life issue and then potentially, a risk factor or a flag for being at, you know, higher risk for for other things happening. And then let's briefly talk about living alone, because I find that people are often worried about older adults who live alone. We might worry about them as public health professionals. And then, you know, families certainly worry about an older relative who lives alone. But are those people who live alone more likely to be socially isolated or lonely? Because it sounds like just because you live alone doesn't mean you're necessarily socially isolated or lonely although I guess you could be.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, this is what's really complicated about this work and about all of these health effects is that there is some interrelatedness, but I think the point of all this is that we have to be careful with assumptions. So... Um we should certainly have, you know, as healthcare providers or as community members or as family members be perhaps worried about the person that lives alone, mainly in terms of is there someone to call? Is there someone in case of an emergency? You know, if I suddenly get sick and need someone to pick my pick up my medications, do I have that in my back pocket? Um, but but so there are absolutely independent risk factors for being being alone as well but we have to be careful again to not make assumptions and so there there's different levels of risk and they all have risks and so our jobs as again as healthcare providers and as community members is to try to understand a little bit more all the factors that are at play so it may be that the person that living alone they are not lonely But the living alone, if they fall, that is a risk factor. So are there ways for us to kind of help keep that person living alone, safe and independent? Right. Well, my guess would be
0: that although not everybody who lives alone is socially isolated or lonely, that's you're still probably there's still probably a correlation. They may be at higher risk, but it sounds like what you're saying is we, we shouldn't assume that everybody who lives alone is socially isolated or lonely. And we also shouldn't assume that people who live with a spouse or with others are actually getting their need for social connection met.
1: That's exactly right. Which also means that you know when we think about identifying um, loneliness in ourselves or others and what we want to do about it, it's not as simple. Of oh, okay, Leslie, you're lonely. Let me just throw you into the senior center. That may be the answer for some people, but it's not for everyone. Which means we need to delve into some uncomfortable conversations about what's driving the loneliness. What is missing from the person's life and how can we actually individualize um, an approach to mitigating that loneliness? And so through your work so
0: far, have you got a sense of which is more worrisome or a sort of stronger risk
1: factor? Is it being socially isolated or lonely? So the, the literature is, is pretty um, um pretty complicated in that it does seem that the combination of both loneliness and isolation together are the highest risk. But loneliness in most studies is actually a higher risk factor than social isolation. I will will put the caveat here that one of the challenges with the research in this area is that the measurement, so how we define isolation and how we measure it is pretty varied, and so when you look at studies, it's hard to really know. When you look at the outcomes, was this really loneliness or was it social isolation? Because there's a there's a lack of consensus around social isolation measures. Um, with loneliness, it's pretty clear using this this three item loneliness questionnaire. But with social isolation, there's a lot of measures, so it's hard to compare one study to another and what's having the biggest effect. Uh I would think that this also sort of
0: ties into some of the research and understanding of purpose in helping older adults maintain their emotional well-being and their mental well-being. Absolutely. What do we know about how uh, loneliness and social isolation might affect brain function or has has anything more been kind of teased out?
1: Really good question. So I would say that, um, you know, I think at the core of all this, or at the core of a lot of this, frankly, is that we still unfortunately live in a very ageist um, environment. And because of that, we tend to, you know, relegate older adults to this unimportant field. And there's also this assumption that loneliness is normal as we get older. Um, and so part of the pathways or part of the things that lead into loneliness, for example, what one why one might feel lonely is this loss of purpose, this, lo- this change in life. So it could be that as we get older, we've had a change in our social structure. We're no longer working or we're doing different work. We're not valued. Um, and so one of the things in terms of interventions is absolutely thinking about, um, how does, how does one person feel purpose? What makes them feel connected? And again, it's going to vary from one person to another. So I think that's a really um, important point actually.
0: And then briefly, do you have a sense of whether the number of older adults who are socially isolated and, um, or are lonely is going up? I've sort of gotten the impression that it might be partly because there seems to be a general trend for the the population to be expressing more social disconnection which seems like it would be tied in with loneliness, but what are some factors relevant to older adults in particular, aside from ageism and the fact that they uh, may having, be having more difficulty finding work or feeling like they're valued at work, among other things?
1: Yeah, so I think the other the other factors that can affect people is that, for example, we know that um, that as we get older, if we have any changes in our um, sensory system, for example, a change in vision or a loss of hearing, that could make us less likely to engage with other people and have meaningful connections. And I've had I've had that happen in some of my own patients where they used to be incredibly social, but as they became hearing impaired, mm. it became embarrassing. They had a harder time connecting with other people. The other thing we see is that. For people who develop cognitive impairment and ultimately dementia it can be very isolating and lonely for both the patient with the cognitive impairment and the caregiver right. the wife the husband because our you know maybe their friends are uncomfortable with someone with dementia and so suddenly um, the world has gotten a lot smaller um the other things that i would say um and interestingly there's there's different uh, ways to look at whether you live in an urban Or rural area both certainly have their risks. so if you live in a rural area or in a wintry area where during the winter you can't leave your home that's gonna make it harder for you to socially engage Mm. and then you know what we see here in San Francisco Leslie is that we live in a very hilly city and I have um, I have people that I take care of who otherwise would love to get out and be socially engaged but the stairs or the hills are what are keeping them confined to their home, and so they are missing out on interactions with other people where they otherwise would love to do that. Right. So, based on that, has doing this work given
0: you some sort of thoughts on um, where you know good places to to age to be as one gets older? Is this something that you would recommend people consider when they're thinking about where they want to settle for the you know the later part of their life, or maybe where their parents? might be well off um, moving to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think that looking at your social environment, and there's a lot of movements nationally and internationally to look at what we call as age-friendly cities and how well are we prepared to to work with um, adults as they age in the city. So thinking about either whether the if you have the options to make a choice and not everyone does, it's either thinking about if you're going to be moving, picking a level, a home that's in one level. I certainly know that when I um, found a house here in San Francisco, I was very aware of as my parents got older what would it be like for them in my own home? Um, even just as visitors and let alone if they come live with me. So, um, there's that part. And there's also, if you know that you're not going to be able to leave your home and move, then, then starting early to get a sense of what are the resources around your community. So here in San Francisco, for example, and actually in several parts around the country, there are actually some pretty good telephone based social support programs that, um, that actually do quite well for some people. And again, it's not the same, you know, what works for me is not going to be what works for you, but it's getting a sense of what's out there so that you can be prepared.
0: Yeah. Well, tell us about some of those. So it sounds like if you're, if you're finding yourself living somewhere where you're not having lots of people coming by, you're not getting out very much for a variety of reasons, then one possibility would be to turn to some of these phone-based services. So, um, so yeah, tell us about them.
1: Yeah, so, so the, probably the two most common and well known here um, here in the Bay Area, but are actually used nationally. Are one is called the Friendship Line, which is out of the Institute on Aging, and it is a twenty four hour hotline which is specifically geared towards older adults. Um, and their main purpose has actually been to decrease uh, feelings of loneliness in the community. And there's a second part which is actually around suicide prevention, which can be very prevalent in older adults. But the way that program goes is that you can call at any time and have someone pick up the phone night or day. And there's also part of it that, you know, you can actually receive calls from them on a weekly basis as a check in. So that's one lovely program, which is actually there's a much larger version of it in the United Kingdom called the Silver Line. Oh, yeah, there was a there was
0: a New York Times article about that, I think, um, a year ago. And it was it was very moving. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It was very moving with these volunteers. They're volunteers, right? Yes who would call all these older adults who just, many of them have not spoken to anybody else all week. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right, and one of the beautiful things, and I would um, I would absolutely share the link because there's great resources and stories on there, is that what's beautiful about that program is that they've had stories about, you know, for example, one gentleman who started using the services after the loss of his wife, and he got so much benefit from, him, from that program that as he got better in his loneliness, he started becoming a volunteer for others. So it's this idea is that I'm receiving help, and now I can return the favor and have purpose as well. So it's like really Really, really amazing. Mm -hmm. I especially
0: love that idea, actually, of older adults becoming kind of peer mentors or volunteers or or um, supports to other older adults. And there's actually an organization called Age Well Global that I recently heard about that is kind of trying to take the community health worker model and recruit older adults to be there providing assistance and support to other older adults. I think they have a pilot going on in New York, actually. So, oh, really? So oh, that might be cool. a nice way to just, know. you know, give people purpose and social connection and, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Um, really leverage the talents of this yeah. older population that um, that we have here.
1: Yeah. And I would say, you know, sometimes there's this idea that, you um, you know, there, there's there's a role for intergenerational mixing, but there's also a role for older adults being with older adults, because I've certainly had the experience of, you know, someone being like, you're a whippersnapper, what do you know about being right. 90 years old? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. But sometimes it's, you know, I also get that I don't want to be around just older people. So how do we do both of those things? But I wanna highlight the second program called Senior Center Without Walls, which is literally exactly what that is. It is a telephone-based senior center. And there they have um, they have a catalog online, or you can call and get it in the mail. And they have a whole wealth of programs, anywhere from discussion groups to book reviews to playing bingo to, you know, a whole slew of things, which is really fantastic for you know people who are homebound or home limited, who can't get out of their home, or maybe have social anxiety in person with people and and phone is the way to go. Um, So there's really great resources out there. And I think this all points to, you know, how do we leverage phone-based or technology-based services for some people? It's not going to work for everyone, but it is one solution.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about other interventions? Have you heard of other sort of programs that are meant to to sort of um, work on this issue of uh, loneliness and social isolation in, in older adults that you think are
1: promising? Well, I think that, you know, unfortunately, this is one of the areas where we need, sadly, the answer is that we need a lot more research because there isn't a lot there in terms of what the interventions, um, what interventions there are. There are some. So for example, the, the United Kingdom does have some data on the effectiveness of the silver line. But, you know, here in San Francisco, we're also working on a program looking at peers, peer-to-peer companionship as a way to, to mitigate loneliness. And what we find, for example, with some of our low-income older adults, they may be connected to a lot of services in the city. So in terms of quote-unquote social isolation, they don't have that isolation, but there's still the sense of loneliness. And what they actually need is a companion to take them to and from or to have a friendly person that they know. Um, So that's... um, so those are those are some of the places that that we're seeing um, working. Um, but you know, I think the main area where we need to think about is um, what are the pathways into loneliness and how can we actually find interventions and test them based on how someone someone is lonely? So for example, for some for someone, it may be that they need to work on improving their social skills as a way to mitigate loneliness because it may be that they, are an introvert or they're a little bit uncomfortable around other people. So is it starting with individual therapy or group theory or phone therapy to start to be more comfortable talking to others? For other people, it actually may be increasing opportunities for social interaction. So that is where someone is social and wants to have more connections, but they don't have opportunities. And that's where it may be actually connecting someone to a senior center or a volunteer program. And so there's a lot of different ways to think about it here. Yeah. So, well, let's think through, you know, a situation
0: that comes up for me a lot. I'm sure it comes up for you also, which is that you have an older person living in their longtime home. uh, Let's say for now that they live on on their own and you have their family worried about them because they feel like their older parent doesn't get out enough and isn't doing enough. But, you know, whenever they've suggested things to their older parent, their older parent sort of seems to shoot it down. So I'm sure you've had families pull you aside to... (laughs) express that concern to you. Um, what do you, um, what should we be telling families or what should we be, um, attempting, you know, as clinicians, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I, I I think that's a great framework, and you're absolutely right. I get that all the time. And and where I would actually start is asking and not making assumptions <laughs> because because it's it's like, is it bothering them or is it bothering me? Right. And and, and so that's the place to start. Because it may be that, you know, so and so's mom is actually fine and they're enjoying that solitude, and they don't want to see other people, and that may be okay. So if they have the infrastructure and the needs to, if they if there's something that goes wrong they can't call their family so then it's okay that they're home alone and don't want to isolate however if you know mrs smith to use a name says you know i actually do feel lonely so then it's getting a sense of well, what are you missing in your life what do you wish you had um and and you'd be surprised at what answers you get um You know, and it helps to frame the discussion in terms of what you can do. For some people, it may be, well, you know, I used to love um, selling things. So then it's thinking about, okay, um, can you volunteer or get a retail job? I mean, there's different, different, you have to think a little bit outside of the box or maybe that person's homebound. Maybe you have a little home sale inside of your home as a way to satisfy that need. You really have to think creatively. But at the core of this, Leslie, is really just not making assumptions. Um, and meeting people where they are. I think that's so important, actually,
0: to sort of, uh, especially for family members to kind of figure out, is it your need or their need? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and to try to mm-hmm. um, untangle that um, so much. And then, you know, the another sort of perennial question is, like, should my mom keep living where she is? Um, you know, let's say that she she does admit to feeling kind of lonely and she's not getting out a lot either because the you know, she stopped driving. Or it's in a location where there's just not easy an easy way to, to, to walk or get on her own to other places. It's either on top of the hill or it's out in a rural area. Do you think that a lot of those people end up better off when they move somewhere? Or, you know, what's your sense? I know it's hard to know for, for sure, but I feel like that's just a perennial dilemma that comes up for families. It is a families. huge dilemma,
1: yeah, no, it's very interesting you say that, Leslie, because I'm actually probably starting to think about that with my own parents. And they're um, they're on the younger spectrum, they're 75, but we certainly are starting to think down the line. You know, their house is one level, but it's up on a hill, so it's getting harder, you know, if they stop driving to get down the hill. Um, but there's a lot of factors to think about. So right now, for example, for my parents, and just to give an example of what other families may be dealing with, my parents have a huge social network. Um, in in the in their hometown. And so right now it would probably be devastating for them to leave their community because of all their friends. Now, if their health changes and they're no longer getting out to those social engagements in their community, then that's where you may think about it may be reasonable to move. But again, it has to be about whose need is it? Is it yours or is it your parents or is it your family members? So in some ways I think about, you know, my idea of having my parents move up here is probably more about my needs than theirs because I will feel more comfortable with them being here
0: (laughs) so right um, yeah but it's good for you to sort of suss that out and uh and identify that you know even if it's still a dilemma you know as to what to suggest that they do or um hope that they do you know at one point I tried to look and I found that I was had trouble finding research on why exactly people moved out of their homes
1: hmm. And I found mm-hmm. myself
0: wondering if a big survey like health and retirement, you know, something where you have a big group of people, I sort of felt like you need kind of a big group of all comers. And then to sort to of understand, why. yeah, to find yeah. out what was the factor that made most of them um, uh, move. move, because I think uh, it seemed to me that that was still something that we didn't entirely understand. And that if we understood that better, it might help us. um advise people on how to plan or how to navigate the way through those common dilemmas.
1: I think you're totally right. And so I think you just bought yourself a research project, but (laughs) (laughs) well, we'll see. (laughs) So
0: many interesting questions.
1: So little time. Yeah, no, but it really is thinking about what are the unmet needs and, and, you know, I have seen moving out of the home go very well for some people and I've seen it not go well. And, um, and it, it, it is absolutely one of these areas where, um, I'm not sure that we have all those right answers. And I think, you know, I've had, um, I've had people I've k- taken care of that once they move into a nursing home, um, has actually been a fantastic thing for their social life. Yeah. Some of them really um, blossom with, uh, all the people around them and exactly. the
0: activities, but then others, um, hate it and are miserable and spend the rest of their time missing their, you know, pining for their, their home.
1: Yeah, and I want to tell you, share one intervention. I was actually just speaking in South Dakota this week, and I learned about an intervention in in kids that are using in schools. And I thought about, wouldn't this be a great thing to have in our cities, or even in some assisted livings and nursing homes? But what they found is that you know we're also seeing rising um, rising rates of loneliness in younger adults, um, which. Sadly and interestingly, there's some interesting um, tables that look at this. That the year the iPhone came out is the year where suddenly you saw decreases in people socially engaging right. and increases in loneliness. Yeah. Um, but but what this project did is that they actually had something called a friendship bench or a buddy bench. That's what it called, and it's this bench that they had in the schoolyard. And if you were feeling lonely, um, you would go sit there. And the whole you know mantra and the whole. Um, thing with, with these kids was that if you saw someone sitting on the bench, it was your responsibility to go invite them to play. And I thought, what a cool... Thing it's so simplistic, Um, but we've also seen other people do similar things in front of their houses. There's a lot of talk about the rise of suburbia, and as people have lost their front porch, no one is engaging. But if you put a fire pit or a bench outside your house and invite people to commingle, it's a way to invite and create community. So you know, I think about I've heard at some assisted livings where there's a lot of you know bullying or clicking in which lunch table you sit at. But wouldn't it be great to start thinking? about some innovative models there about, you know, just creating a culture of inclusion. Right. Yeah.
0: And I think that really speaks to the importance also of the physical environment around us and whether we can, you know, create or encourage environments that just make it easier for people to get some of that social connection and social encounters that that most people really need. You know, not everybody seems to need it, but a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so now what about for um, older adults themselves? Let's say people who, um are in their their 60s or 70s and are kind of thinking ahead, and want to give themselves the best chance at uh, successful aging or aging as you know well as possible, given whatever health challenges they're going to encounter. Mm-hmm. I think you and our uh, colleague Helen Gao did a presentation on how advanced planning could be used to reduce the risk of loneliness. Can you tell us a little bit about that and other ideas you might have for people
1: who want to be proactive? it. Yeah, absolutely. It? You know, I think that advanced care planning um, is something that we, we, we ignore um, all too much. And it's really the idea of, of thinking early while you're healthy um, is as you get older, or if you were, even if you're younger and get sick, what are the things that are important to you in your life? So for example, you know, I know that I will never want a feeding tube ever, regardless of the circumstances, even if temporary, that is my hard stop. Now that may be different for someone else, but there's also knowing important things in terms of communicationism Important to me, where I live is important, and the more you think about the preferences up front and communicate this with your friends or your family, or you know, or your lawyer if you don't have friends or family, it's so important to think about creating these networks so that you can make sure that you are getting the best quality of care and life, um, you know, as things come ahead. So it is the idea of creating these these um, safety nets for yourself. Um, in case of emergency, but also just as a general guideline, guideline for for what's important to you in your life. So, what would that? Well, how would somebody
0: like start that process? You know, when they're thinking of let me be proactive in terms of you know uh, reducing my risk of loneliness. It sounds like one thing you sort of mentioned it earlier that you've sort of thought about. If your parents couldn't drive, mm-hmm. how would they? You know, not only get their little daily tasks done, like their groceries or or get to the doctor, but also how would they sort of get their social encounters, right? Mm-hmm. And people often mm-hmm. say, well, if you were to stop driving, but maybe what we should really say is um, when? when, because for <laughs> right. many people, if you live long enough, it's going to come up at some point, you might be lucky and never have it come up. But for many people, it, it comes up. So would that be one of the steps to sort of look around and say, well, if I weren't able to drive and do all these things to get around that I take for granted now, how would I... How would I get to my, my uh, social encounters?
1: That's exactly right. And it means, it means getting a sense of what's in your community. So, so two resources that are probably good for people to know, regardless of the community they live in. So one is the Department of Aging and Adult Services, which is really county-based, which is really a repository for um, all of the resources in, the, in, in cities and counties around aging. Um, the second one is actually through AARP, um, which is um, they have a whole website called Connect to Effect. Mm. Um, and in that, there's actually, you know, they're still perfecting it, but it's it's something that you look by zip code and can see what may be available in your neighborhood. So it's getting a sense of what is there and being proactive. And if it doesn't exist, think about starting it. I mean, that's a, a lot of how programs have started is by someone saying, this is an unmet need in my community. And I want to get it started, right.
0: Um, yeah, also kind of related to advanced planning is um, I think I, I saw that you mentioned this in another talk you gave, but just the issue of financial exploitation and abuse because um, there is some evidence that some of it is driven by older adults being isolated and one not having enough people around them to kind of help them notice um, when somebody might be taking advantage of them or, That also, you know, there are sort of unethical people who will kind of cultivate friendships with older adults who don't have a lot of social connection and will kind of take advantage of that to uh, to mooch off the, the older person. I think we all know some older person who had someone else hanging around them quite a lot. And we felt that, you know, we had concerns
1: about the nature, their motivations. It is so devastating how much, how much we see this. And I've, I've seen it time and time again, and you're right. It absolutely, I think where loneliness and isolation play into this is that, you know, this is why older adults get preyed upon is that they, you know, they get a friendly call from someone and I can help you with this. And suddenly the next thing, you know, they're signing over their house. And I have literally seen this in my patients. And so, you know, again, as you think about, who is in your circle, or if you don't have a circle, how can you, you know, protect yourself, which may be, um, you know, creating this advanced care planning document um, and writing your preferences. There is a great um, resource by one of our colleagues, Rebecca Sudori, called Prepared for Your Care. Yeah, I love prepared. Which is a whole... Wh- Yeah. And, and, um, you know, if your listeners haven't, haven't gone to that, it's fantastic as a way to really walk you through what's important to you. Um, and it, and it's, and it's as serious as, you know, your end of life wishes. And it can be as, um, as simple as, you know, my wishes that my last meal will be popcorn and salami. So, you know, but it's really thinking about all the things that are important in your life and how to, you know, who is going to protect my assets, who can make financial decisions for me so that if someone does prey upon me, I have someone that can help me out.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, Carla, this this has been great. In closing, do you have any favorite other resources that you want to share to help the audience learn more about these issues related to loneliness or social isolation, or to get help? Now, let me see. So far, and I'm going to put links for this. We've mentioned the Institute on Aging Friendship Line, ARP Connect to Effect, the your local Department of um, Aging and Adult Services. Anything else you think people should um, so um,
1: should know seniors- about seniors? Senior Center Without Walls, we mentioned. Um, and then the other website, which is international, but it's a great resource to learn a little bit more about this topic, is Age UK, um, which is out of the United Kingdom, which is their role whole platform to really talk about, um, you know, a culture of positive um, discussion around aging.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then lastly, if you're a concerned family member, you know, don't go assuming
1: that exactly. things are
0: Ryan and that you have to swoop in and intervene, you know, start by asking questions and exploring how the older person actually sees things and um, what they say they want, right?
1: That's exactly right. And I would say that, you know, I say this often, time and time and again, that often just opening the discussion around loneliness is a great healing place to start. Even if you don't have the exact answer, it's just opening the door to listen. Mm-hmm. That's a great closing thought.
0: Thank you so much, Carla.
1: No problem. Thanks, Leslie.
0: And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.